Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Chatham Community Church. My name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you're joining us for our uh, Sunday morning worship experience, and uh, glad you're here with us. If you're a guest, I want to extend a particularly warm welcome to y'all, and I'd love to say hi to you at the end of the service. So uh, once we're done, I'm going to be at the back under the exit sign. Uh, Come say hi. I'd love to hear your name, uh, how you found us, and what your experience was like this morning. Um, and uh, let me pause for just a second because we were having some slide issues. So I know you're, you've got the con, Krista, and that's fine. Um, Dave, uh, the display is uh, wrong for me here. I'm having the worship display instead of the one I normally use. So if you could take a look at that. Okay, great. Um, glad you're here. Uh, for most of my life, I've had an unfortunate habit. Well, maybe I have many, but I'm just going to talk about one right now. Uh, I have the unfortunate habit of eating too quickly. Now, some people have told me that this is common in folks that grew up with lots of siblings, but I don't have that excuse. Uh, I grew up an only child. I never had to fight with anyone for seconds. I just have a habit of wolfing down my food as soon as it's set in front of me. And my mom didn't mind it that much, but when I was at my grandparents' house, it became an issue. It wasn't just that I would hurry to finish my food, but as soon as I was done, I would rush away from the table uh, to, to run back and park myself in front of the TV to make sure I could, I could settle back into whatever show I had interrupted in order to go and eat lunch or dinner. Uh, and, uh, you know, my, my grandpa got tired of this at one point. Uh, Because he had a strong conviction that what happened at the table with family was important. Uh, That it was an important and crucial time for the family. Because around the table is where you got to spend time with each other after everyone had been doing what they were doing during the day. You told stories, you asked questions, you laughed, you sort of uh, collected what was going on in life. And most importantly, you got to enjoy dessert and coffee. My grandfather loved the time around the table, and he'd often remain at the table long after the meal was done and long after everyone else had uh, left. Now, some of that was his value for the table. Some of that was he had a particularly sweet tooth, and so he'd just slowly eat like tins of dessert over and over and over again. Uh, He wanted to make sure that I understood how important this value was or how valuable this time was. And he couldn't do much in order to keep me from eating quickly or hurrying while I was eating, though that didn't stop him from trying. Uh, But he was was set on doing something about my rushing away from the table. So he did something really strategic. He changed where I sat. See, my, my grandfather sat at the head of the table, and behind him was a wall, and to his left was another wall, and there was a set of chairs. And I used to sit, like, on the open side of him and at the farthest chair away from him. And so I could, like, literally be done with my food, get out of my chair, and, like, bolt down the hallway to the TV. And so he moved me all the way around the table to the spot next to him where I had a wall to my right, a wall behind me, another person on my left, and my grandfather sitting right here at the head of the table. And whenever he'd see me rushing with my food and almost getting ready to leave, he would just clamp down a hand on my arm. Gently. Unless, I, unless he had gotten distracted and I was ready to bolt, and then it would come down quickly. And he would look me in the eye and he would say, stay, this is important. 
we don't get up from the table yet. And I'm glad he did that because I grew to cherish those times. There were times where I heard stories about my grandparents' upbringing, uh, the stories I heard about my cousins' lives. We talked about the values of our family. We laughed together. Something incredibly meaningful happened during those times, and I cherished them. And I would have missed all of those sweet moments if I had continued hurrying and rushing off. I caught at that table one of the important life lessons And that's that hurry can cause us to miss some of the best parts of life. Hurry can cause us to miss some of the best parts of life. We can be so focused on where we're headed and what's next and what's on the horizon that we can miss the opportunities in the now. And there is so much hurry in our lives, so much busyness and hurry in our world I hear it in the stories we tell. I hear it in how we talk about our weeks. I see it in our harried faces. I catch it when you tell me how you're going from one thing to another and you don't know how you can fit everything in the schedule and how you're going to be able to manage the cars when there's teenagers and young kids playing sports in one county and taking dance lessons in another across the county and how you're hoping and praying that one kid gets to the age where they can drive so they can shoulder some of that load. I see the hurry and I hear the hurry in our stories. Could it be? that we're missing some of the best parts of life. This is the second week in our series, Won't You Be a Neighbor? Um, yeah, no worries. I trust, I trust y'all. One of, the ba- one of the ways that the Bible summarizes what makes for a life well lived is summarized in the statement, love God and love your neighbors. And God has gathered us here in Chatham County as a faith community, and we live here, we work here, we study here, we play here, we do so many things here in the county, and sometimes even beyond the county, either because commitments take us just outside county limits or across the state, or sometimes because of the groups we're connected to around the country and around the world, which means we have the opportunity to be in contact with tons of potential neighbors, hundreds, maybe even thousands. And so through the passages we're going to be focusing on during this series, we're going to talk about what it means to love our neighbors, what it looks like to be the kind of neighbors who love, what makes it challenging to love our neighbors and to be a good neighbor. How do we overcome those obstacles? And we'll also give you some practical steps to take as you seek to be a good neighbor. Now, If a life well lived, right, the best possible kind of life includes loving our neighbors and our world was filled with hurry and busyness and hurry and busyness can become obstacles to the best parts of life or can cause us to miss some of the best parts of life, then it stands to reason that hurry and its close cousin busyness can be obstacles to being a neighbor. And in fact, I'd argue that hurry and busyness are some of the biggest obstacles to being a neighbor because in our current day and age, hurry and busyness are not seen as detriments. They're seen as virtues. They are prized and rewarded. They are cherished and taught about. These, I think, are some of the biggest obstacles that we need to overcome in order to be a neighbor. So today we're going to look at a passage where Jesus lives an unhurried life, 
where he walks at an unbusy pace. He's unencumbered, unencumbered by the types of busyness that we prize. And what we'll see in that passage is that Jesus lives at a pace that makes him a great neighbor. That Jesus lives at a pace that makes him the ideal neighbor. And in following Jesus, which is what many of us here are either trying to do or exploring whether we want to do, in following him, we are invited to live at his pace, to live at the unhurried and unbusy pace. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. Mark is one of the four accounts we have of Jesus' life. They start the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to be reading chapter 5 in Mark. We're going to start in verse 21, if I'm not mistaken. But let me look at my notes to confirm that. Yeah, 21. We're going to start in verse 21. And if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, because we're going to put it on the screen in just a second. But as you're looking for that, before we get into the text, I want to ask you to take a moment and think right now where you are. Actually, take stock of your life. Take stock of your schedule. And I want you to consider who or what sets the pace for your life. Who or what sets and defines the pace at which you operate, at which you live, at which you go about your day to day? And once you've identified that, Consider whether that who or that what is leading you to a life well lived. If that pace is actually leading you to the kind of life where you love God and love your neighbors. And if not, I want to invite you to reconsider the pace that you're living at and consider living at Jesus' pace. Let's read starting in verse 21 of Mark 5. Here's what it says. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she got worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. Now, a crowd had gathered around Jesus as he was by the lake. They're likely at that moment listening to his teaching. That's probably what he came to do in that day, to teach the crowds, to teach the masses. And perhaps that's all Jesus planned on doing that day. Just spend most of the day with the crowds around the lake, teaching and conveying his his kingdom message to them. But then two people enter the scene. The first is a man named Jairus. He's a synagogue leader, a man of import in the community. The second is a woman who remains unnamed, but both have a need. And both recognize that Jesus has the power to meet that need. And both come to Jesus with their need, a need for healing. And both interrupt him. The man interrupts Jesus as he's teaching, and the woman interrupts Jesus as he's on his way to heal. Now, at that first interruption, when Jairus comes and plants himself at Jesus' feet, 
while he's teaching. Jesus could have done a number of things, a number of other things. He could have told Jairus to wait. He could have said, hold on a second, I'll get to you in a little bit. Uh, He could have told them that he was teaching, and he couldn't stop right now. His plan was to teach today, and he should come back at another time. He could have healed from afar. There are scenes in the Gospels where Jesus heals from afar. Jesus could have done that. He could have said, wait, what do you need? You know, wait, 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 hold on. What lesson are, put a pin in that lesson. What do you need? Okay, healed. All right, let's keep going with point number three of this lesson. But he didn't do those things. He didn't do those things. That's not how Jesus responds to this man's interruption. He pays attention to him. He's living at a different pace. He recognizes that in this man coming to him, there is an opportunity. There's an opportunity to be a neighbor. And a neighbor is what Jairus needs, and Jesus is that for him. You can tell a lot about what our actual pace of life is by how we respond to interruptions. How do you respond to interruptions? How do you respond when someone interrupts you when you're in the middle of something? When you're focused on doing something and someone just walks in or the phone rings or, some, or you hear a sound or someone just tries to get your attention, how do you respond to interruptions? We were talking about this in small group this week and a couple of nuggets came out of that. One of our small group members was talking about how his daughters are back at the age where they want his attention all the time. You know, there's that age when they're kids, where, where, when they're very, very young, the kids want your attention all the time. And then there's this gap of time where you are insignificant in the world. And then they return to a time where now they want your attention again. Now they want to talk. Now they want to hear. Now they want your advice. But my friend had gotten used to this no attention time, right? And so now what happens is he's in the middle of like writing things or attending to other chores or he's out outside and his phone will ring and it'll be his daughter from college or his daughter who's still in the house will come on out and try to talk to him. And he was getting frustrated and then he took a moment and realized, wait, 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 this is the important stuff. So he started practicing something he calls the cleansing breath. This is a nugget for all y'all that might, be diff- might, might find it difficult to deal with interruptions. When his daughters come or when they call, without them realizing it, he takes a deep breath. It's sort of a way that he transitions from whatever he was doing to attending to what's happening in the now. He calls it the cleansing breath. Another thing that was shared was one of our members was in the service. He was, he was in the military. And he talked about how when he was in the military and he had an office, whenever a superior officer would walk in, you would immediately stop what you were doing, you would stand to attention, and you would do whatever that superior officer needed. Because whatever they needed was important because they were a superior officer. I think there's something to that, right, in how we respond to interruptions. Now, there are interruptions that are unnecessary. There are interruptions that are distracting. There are interruptions that are unhelpful. There are interruptions that our lives would be better without. But what might it look like if if we were open to the possibility that some interruptions were actually presenting something more important to us and we responded at first glance to interruptions with that possibility? that maybe what I'm being interrupted for is actually more important, is actually the most important. How might it change how we respond to our interruptions? See, interruptions are actually sometimes invitations to be a neighbor. 
And if we're never open to the possibility that our interruptions might be for something more important, we will miss the invitations. In fact, because of the pace that we currently live at, because of our hurried and busy lives, many of us are auto-checking no on that RSVP to be a neighbor. And we're letting opportunities pass us by. Opportunities to live the life well lived. Notice that Jesus recognizes the invitation in the interruptions. Notice that he attends to them. In fact, the, the, the way that he attends to them, the fact that he positions himself to see interruptions as invitations to be a neighbor, positions him to take it even a level deeper. Let's continue on reading in the text. Let's remember that at this point, the woman has touched Jesus' cloak and she has been healed. And we'll go back into the text. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you asked, Who touched my clothes? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened, uh, what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people, <clears throat> sorry, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing that, they said, uh, overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly, right? They're deep in grief. And he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were there with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talita kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood and began to walk around. She was around 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Now, let's be clear. This story would have been a great story without Jesus stopping to talk to the woman. It would have been great anyway, right? The woman being healed by just touching Jesus' garment is a great story as he's on the way to heal Jairus' daughter. It's actually a very efficient story, right? Jesus is on his way to heal J Jairus' daughter, and as an added bonus, an extra healing happens, right? This woman gets healed without delaying Jesus, right? We could say that Jesus heals in stride, or Jesus heals without missing a beat. Maybe he would have stopped, looked around, acknowledged that something happened, and thus and then just kept going, right? And we could say things like, Jesus multitasks. He's able to heal while he's walking on the way to another healing. And that might even make more sense to us. That might resonate with the way our current society works and what it values. But Jesus lives at a different pace. And so the story is different. He lives unhurried. He lives unburdened by busyness. And instead of barreling ahead, to the next thing, Jesus lingers. Jesus lingers. The woman has already been healed, friends. She already got what she came for. This has already been, in her frame of mind, a great day. 
The suffering that she's been under uh, physically has ceased. It's a great day already, but Jesus lingers. Jesus lingers. He is aware that something has happened. He is aware that power has gone out, and he stops and extends an invitation to her. Now, note that he doesn't say, who's been healed? He says, who touched me? Right? And the reality is, everyone was touching Jesus. The crowd was crowding around him. But Jesus isn't going to tell her story. He's not going to speak for her. He's affording her the option to relate to him. See, when he asks, who's touching me? What he's actually asking is, you who are here, who know what happened, do you want to come forward? Do you want to relate to me? Do you want to share what happened? He's letting her know that he not only wants to heal her or wants her to be well, but he wants to know who she is. He wants to know her. And this meets a deep need that the woman has. The stakes were incredibly high for her that day. Being a woman in that time already put her in a disadvantaged situation. And the duration and type of ailment that she was under meant that she had possibly suffered for most of her adult life. She's been ostracized from society. And she's likely not been able to participate in the religious life of her community for a long time. She's had a deficit of human interaction, of human contact, of human engagement. She's lost all her resources and all the means she sought to resolve her situation have failed her. She was desperate and in a desolate situation. And approaching Jesus is incredibly risky. Because anyone who she touches in the crowd would have been considered unclean because she's unclean. And if she's not healed and she's found out, there could be consequences. Now her physical ailment is now gone as she's touched Jesus. She's been healed, but there's still more healing to be done. And that healing happens because Jesus lingers. That healing happens because Jesus lingers. Jesus affirms in his lingering and in his communication with her, that she had something powerful. She may have lost all her resources, her material resources, but she had not lost it all. She still had something powerful. She had her faith, and that was powerful. He affirms that her actions had impact. He affirms uh, uh, that her actions had an effect. He blesses her with peace. How meaningful must that have been over the, over the course of years where she's been anything but at peace? Anything but at peace to receive a blessing of peace. And he calls her daughter. To the best of my knowledge, this is the only person that Jesus refers to as daughter. What a unique moment. What a, what a singular experience. He gives a dear term to a woman who had been beyond arm's length of human relationship for so long. He welcomes her back into the family. And all of this happens because Jesus lingers. I love how Noemi Vega puts it in the book, Hermanas. Here's what she says. Maybe years of being treated as a nobody made her think she was a nobody. But Jesus wants her to be seen. Jesus wants her to be heard. Jesus' love for the ble bleeding woman made her restoration holistic, all-encompassing, right? Both physical and social, both systemic and personal. By calling her daughter, Jesus welcomed her into the family community 
he was forming. And I'd say into the family community, she had been missing for so long. And all of this happens because Jesus lingers. Because Jesus lingers. See, lingering makes allowance for and invites that which we can't predict or plan. Lingering makes allowance for and invites that which we can't predict or plan. And our hurry and busy world do not mix with lingering. Hurrying and busyness do not mix with lingering. They crowd out all the space for the stuff we can't predict or plan. They crowd out in that space for God to move. They crowd out space for us to be neighbors. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't move in the midst of plans, right? I am not a non-planner. I am a planner. I am a structured and organized person, very much so. But there is something to being open to and inviting God into spaces that we haven't planned for, into opportunities that in some ways we aren't controlling. There's something to lingering. Different things can happen. Because lingering feels unnatural at our current pace and is so against the, 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 the message of hurry and busyness. Let's do a little bit of how to linger, right? Let's talk about how we can linger in our interactions with people. So the first thing that we can do to, to linger in our interactions with people is to give it time. Now, I don't mean like be patient while it happens. I mean actually budget time for it. This is my hack. My hack is I budget time for lingering. You see, I told you I was a planner. Here's how I learned that. I learned that when I first moved here. When I first moved here, one of my tasks was to meet with as many people as I could uh, in a short amount of time, uh, which meant that I was booking lots of appointments. And here's what I, what I realized started to happen. What started to happen is we would get past the normal get-to-know-you pleasantries, uh, and I was getting to know people, and then we would start to get somewhere deep. And I would see people like, like trusting me as their pastor and start to share stuff, and then I'd be like, this is a wonderful conversation. I've got to get to my next appointment. And I would see the look of like, ugh. And this happened often enough that I started to feel like, mm, maybe this is not the right thing. And then I started to learn from Alex, right? Alex is our lead pastor. Because here's what happened with Alex. Alex would often, or not often, let me not say that. That would not be fair. Uh, occasionally, Alex would be late to meetings he had with me. And by the way, I hate lateness. Part of the reasons why I would leave those meetings I had is because I felt I had to be on time to my next meeting. And Alex would be late to our meetings. And I'd be like, what's going on? He'd be like, yeah, I was just meeting with someone and it went long and we were getting to a really good place and I didn't feel like I could leave them. See, Alex lingers. Alex lingers. And he was having opportunities in that that I was missing out on. Now, I am still not comfortable being late to things. But what I do now is I just budget more time. If I were to say, okay, this lunch is going to take an hour, I'll budget an hour and a half, two hours. I won't book something for another hour after that or another half hour. And let me tell you, there are times where nothing happens. Lunch ends in 45 minutes. And that's okay. I catch up on email, I take a walk, I do something else. But I could tell story after story of the type of conversations, the types of prayers, the types of trust that has been built in that space that I've budgeted for lingering, all because I've made time for it. So the first thing in our busy and hurried well in order to linger with people is to give it time. Now, once you've given it time, here are some 
tips in the moment, right? In the moment with people that you can do. The first is let, the, let silence do its work. Silence allows space for stuff to emerge. So let it do its work. Let it do its work. Some people call it the pregnant silence. Not every silence is pregnant. There are silences that are awkward. But let silence do its work. The second is give your attention. One of the things that would happen in those meetings where I had one right after is that at about minute, at about minute 40, I was looking at the clock. I would draw my attention away from the person. I wasn't attending to them. I wasn't being a neighbor. So give it your attention. And then the last one is use questions and comments to provoke an invitation. Here are some questions and comments that I use that help in the lingering draw people out and give me opportunities to be a neighbor. Questions and comments. I'll say things like, sounds like that was blank for you. Someone will say something, I'll say, sounds like that was hard for you. And then I'm silent. And in that silence, there's an invitation of, do you want to say more? I can't tell you how many times that has led to prayer or that has led to just a moment of connection. Sounds like you really enjoyed that. Tell me more. Sometimes I'll ask something like, what was that like? What did you love about that? One that I've been asking, one that, one that I ask fairly frequently is, how has God met you in the midst of that? Some people are never asked that. And in the lingering, because I've created space, by the way, it takes time to get to the point of the conversation where you can ask those questions or say those things, which is why I give time to it. Friends, many of you have been in those conversations with me. You know what God has done. You know how we've connected. You know how we've built trust. In fact, some of you have told stories that have, that have blessed me. In the midst of that lingering, you've, you've reciprocated and you've asked me questions. You've drawn me out. You've prayed for me, all because we've lingered. We've lingered in the space and we've connected with God. Now listen, I often don't know what's going to come on the other side of the waiting or you know, of the lingering, or of the questions, or of the silence. I often don't know. But what I found is that God is often doing work in the people I'm with in those spaces. And because I linger, I get an opportunity to be a neighbor to them. What opportunities might you have with the folks I can't get to? I can't get to the folks you work with. I can't linger with them. You're the one who's been invited to linger with them. I can't linger with the folks in your classes. You are invited to linger with them. I can't linger with the, folks, uh, with the folks you see at the doctor. You're invited to linger with them. I can't necessarily linger with the folks who live around you, but you are invited to linger with them. God is inviting us to be with people just as Jesus lingered with the woman. Jesus lingering created an unexpected and profound moment for the woman and for all of us who've heard this story over the years. What might happen when we linger? Now, here's the thing about lingering. Stuff happens while we linger, outside of what we're lingering for. And stuff has happened here. News comes that Jairus' daughter is dead. And with that, he receives a prodding to leave Jesus alone. But Jesus is not done with Jairus and his, or his daughter. And so he says to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. Now, this is challenging to hear at first. I can't imagine this was easy for Jairus because his worst possible fear has come true at this moment. He's been late. He's failed to save his daughter and his daughter is gone. His worst possible fear has been realized and Jesus tells him, don't be afraid. Too late. Too late. She's gone. We've lost her. 
Yet it, is yet it is also exactly what Jairus needs to hear. Because all he can do in this moment is believe. All he can do, all he has left is believe and hope that Jesus might be able to do something. That there still might be something that can be done. I'm so glad Jesus was there. I'm so glad Jesus allowed himself to be interrupted. I'm so glad Jesus lives at a different pace. I'm so glad he told him to, uh, to not be afraid and believe. I'm so glad he went ahead to the house and took only a few people with him. I'm so glad he took them into that room along with the parents. And I'm so glad that this girl was brought back to life. Jesus was there at an unhurried and unbusy pace. He saw the need and the opportunity in this situation, for to stoke and embody faith, hope, and love. And it started with him being unhurried and unbusy. He was able to see the opportunity and seize it. When we live at the pace of Jesus, at the unhurried and unbusy pace, we position ourselves to see, speak, and embody faith, hope, and love. When we live at the unbusy and unhurried pace, we have the opportunity to see where there is need for these things. And in seeing the need for these things, then we have the opportunity to speak them, to invite others to step into them, and to embody them. All those things are at play because Jesus lets himself be interrupted, because Jesus attends, because Jesus engages. We have an opportunity to be this for our neighbors. Friends, hurry and busyness leave us distracted. They leave us in distracted states because we are already attending to the next thing that we haven't yet arrived at. We are unable to be attentive to what's in front of us when we are hurried, harried, and busy. We overlook things, important things, because we don't have time for them. And we can't be the neighbors the folks around us need living like that. We can't be the neighbors the folks around us need living like that. Our world needs to be called away from hurry and busyness, and it has to start with us. It has to start with us. The people around us need to have faith. They need to have hope. They need to have love. They need to have it spoken and embodied. They need someone to see and recognize the need for it in their lives. They need someone to invite them to believe. Now let me address one of the tempting lies of harriedness or hurriedness and busyness. One of the tempting lies is that by hurrying and being busy, we will accomplish more. We will get more done. Now, what is true? There's some truth to that. The truth is we will do more things. By being hurried and busy, by filling up our schedule with things to do and focusing on the next thing, we will do more things. But that's not the measure of a life well lived. The measure of a life well lived is not getting more things done. Jesus spent three years in public ministry, just three. And if you measure his life, it doesn't seem like he did a lot of things. He didn't do a lot of tasks. He lived unhurried and unbusy. But his life was well lived. And what he accomplished has changed the world, has changed our lives so as we lived unhurried and unbusy lives, I'm going to tell you the truth. It's going to seem like we get less done. It's going to seem that way, but I can guarantee you we'll accomplish more. We will accomplish more of what matters and what lasts because we will live a life well 
lived. So friends, here's the invitation today. To be a neighbor at the unhurried, unbusy pace of Jesus. Be a neighbor to the people around you. See the need. Stoke faith. Stoke hope. Stoke love. Linger and see what God does. I'm going to give you some practical steps on how to do that this week. The first is to establish some device-free blocks of time. Man, one of the things that draws our attention most to the next thing is those devices we attach ourselves to. Just set some hours where you're not going to be attached to a device and see how that slows your pace of life. See how that opens you up to have eyes to see. Go walk around the neighborhood. Go talk to your neighbors. Go attend to the people who are in the office next to you. Turn off the email for five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes. The second is to do an interruptibility audit. I made up that word, interruptibility. That's okay. Trademark Jaime. Um, ask the people around you. Uh, it, it might be hard to hear the answers, but ask the people around you how interruptible you are. It will be sobering, I suspect, for some of us to hear uh, how gruff we can come across when we are interrupted. Well, maybe that's just me. Um, but, but see, and then establish what's your baseline and what you would like to aspire to. And the last one is, employ my lingering hack. Budget more time. Not to do more things, but to have space to linger. Have space to linger. Budget more time. I don't want to say three easy steps because that sounds like I'm trying to sell you something. But um, I, I know that the wave of hurry and busyness is strong in our world. I know many of us are deep in it. So I just want to give you some very simple first steps for you to take and try. Because here's what I believe. If we start small, God will bless that. He'll stoke that. And we'll be able to take the next step and the next step and the next step after that. May it be said of the folks at Chatham Community Church that we were good neighbors because we lived unbusy, because we lived unhurried. Because even though it sounded like we didn't do a whole lot of things, we accomplished being part of God's transforming work in Chatham County and beyond. May that be said of us as we live at Jesus' pace. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you that you modeled a life well lived and you did it living differently than what our world tells us is required to live a life well lived. Thank you that you lived unbusy and unhurried. Lord, I need to be reminded of that all the time. Lord, our neighbors need that. They need us to be the kinds of neighbors that don't hurry and aren't overburdened by busyness. Help us take step one today. For some of us, it's step 20. Bless the Lord for that. May we share our testimony. And Lord, would you bless Chatham County and beyond through the work you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.